Hello, I'm Liz Jones. If you read my diary in the Mail on Sundays You magazine, then you'll know me and my life pretty well. But if you've always wanted to know more, this is the place for you. Welcome to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast. I'll be taking you behind the scenes of this week's column before digging back into the archives to find some of the most shocking and hilarious stories from the last 20 years. I'll be doing all this with the help of my assistant, friend and confidant, Nick. Hello. I couldn't watch this. I couldn't stand it. I was. It just upset me too much. You didn't like that beauty. Well, I just. It just upset me too much because I was terrified something was going to happen to the elves. I couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand it. Well. As a child, I loved watching Black Beauty. I absolutely loved it. But I am going to talk about Black Beauty today because there's a new book out by Celia Brayfield, very good journalist, called Writing Black Beauty. And it's really a biography of Anna Sewell, who wrote Black Beauty, but it's also a biography of the animal rights movement. I remember a few years ago, I pitched to Radio 4 a series... I wanted them to do a series on Radio 4, the history of the animal rights movement, and they were like, oh, no, bugger off. But she's written this book, which is a history of the animal rights yeah. movement. And it's interesting because it was mainly driven by women. So there were women, housewives, wrote the Housewives' Guide to Being Kind to Animals in the 1800s. It was women, 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 women. And Anna Sewell is obviously the most famous of the women. Yeah. But it's interesting because she never married and she never had children. And she was an invalid. She's a bit like you, really, Nick. She broke her ankle and it never, she never recovered from breaking her ankle. And she had a lot of abdominal pain. She had a lot of dizziness. She couldn't walk. All the doctors did, they came along and bled her. They used to just yeah. bleed blood from her. They didn't know what they were doing. But because she was an invalid, she spent a lot of time looking outside her window at the carriage horses going past, and she couldn't really walk, so she had a pony. So that's who Mary Legs was based on. Do you remember Mary Legs? I do. It was based on her pony, and she could drive a little pony trap. It, It gave her freedom, and it gave her mobility when she couldn't walk. And I get the feeling, really, if Anna Sewell had been married with children not disabled, not in pain, not empathetic, she would never have written this book because you need the space to write the book. And she wasn't concerned with the children. She wasn't concerned with being a housewife, looking after her husband. It gave her the space to look outside herself and look outside her window and see how the horses were suffering. Horses used to just drop down dead in their bridles. Yeah onto the ground is I mean absolutely terrible the description in this book of animals in Victorian London is absolutely heartbreaking and shocking 
But it was also very visible because there wasn't refrigeration, there weren't motor cars. This is just before the railway. Animals had to walk to their deaths because there was no other way of transporting them safely. So they weren't frozen meat, they couldn't put it on a plane, they couldn't package it. So animals had to walk walk to their deaths. So London, particularly Caledonian Road, Smithfields, Hackney as well, there were these big markets, so cows and sheep and pigs would be sort of driven to the butchers. You'd yeah. see them. And although Victorian London sounds, well, it was just before Victoria, actually. I'm going to come on to Queen Victoria. It sounds awful. In a way, it was more visible what yeah. was happening to animals. There were very few animal rights laws. Now it's more hidden. And only really if you follow animal rights people on Twitter do you see it, and it is awful. Now they are sort of multi-storey pig farms in China which process pigs, millions and millions and millions of them. So in a way, although there was bull baiting and terrible, terrible blood sports, in a way I think it's worse now. And I wonder what Anna Sewell would think now if she saw the Grand National when three horses were killed. I think as well, there's a there's an assumption, isn't there, that we're we're 2023. I think there's an assumption when you don't see it, you you assume that animals are getting higher welfare, that things are better. And it's only when I mean, you know, when I was a vegetarian, for instance. I thought I was doing a really good thing, and I and and that milk and and egg was a byproduct. And it was only really when I st- went on Twitter, and I started seeing the reality of the egg industry and how you know live chicks were being ground up and how you know calves were had these horrendous things on their faces with spikes on, so they couldn't drink their mother's milk, and and I was horrified absolutely horrified because i honest to god had no idea that all this was going on it is hidden but it's you know even in the 1800s there were some laws passed you know protecting cattle protecting horses from being beaten but we haven't really progressed i think anna seal would be very upset um but what i found interesting in the book is her writing about queen victoria and we've all seen Young Victoria, haven't yeah, we, the yeah. movie? We've all seen the series Victoria, and she had the little dog Dash. But nowhere in all these films about Victoria, books about, until this book, I didn't know that Victoria, in 1837, she came to the throne, and she was a woman, and she was an animal lover, and she changed the course, her and Albert changed the course of animal welfare. So whenever legislation came before Parliament to protect wild birds, to ban vivisection, because before Victoria, animals were operated on by doctors to learn when they were still alive. Horrific. And she instructed in 1837 onwards, a young woman instructed her secretary to inform the House that she was taking a close interest in its progress, which was the most that she could do. And her patronage of hospitals and medical schools was granted only on the undertaking that they would not experiment on animals. And so the SPCA with Victoria became the Royal Society of Protection of Cruelty to to Animals. So she was the first royal and she hated fox hunting and she hated blood sports. 
Um, but the what there was one good man in this story, and he was called George Thorndike Angel, and he was from Boston, and he was a prominent opposer of slavery. And Anna died only five months after Black Beauty was published, so she didn't see the success. She didn't see it, and he made sure because he was a lifelong animal lover, he made sure it was published all over the world. He gave it to handsome cab drivers. He gave it to schools. He gave it to farmers. He gave it to anyone who owned a horse. And because of Anna Sewell, not just all the profits went to charities, they banned the bearing rain. Um, this is ginger. That's I love amazing. Ginger. I love ginger. Don't you love ginger? I just, yeah, it, literally, I, I can just feel myself shrinking with, with, with upset Black Beauty, I can't stand it. So, pre-Anna Sewell, all horses wore a bearing ring, and this is Ginger describing it. She says, you have two bits instead of one, and mine was a sharp one. It hurt my tongue and my jaw, and the blood from my tongue coloured the froth that kept flying from my lips. Besides the soreness in my mouth and the pain in my neck, because it gave them this very overarched, Awful. fashionable curve of the neck yeah. that you see in every old but film. But we still also see that today in a lot of modern dressage. Yeah. It's it's absolutely horrific. We pull horses into a completely unnatural... The bearing rein stopped them breathing properly. Yeah. And so Ginger says, it made my windpipe feel bad. And if I had stopped there long, I know it would have spoiled my breathing. And Anna Sewell points out that in Bath, which is very hilly, the horses had to contend not only with cruel owners, but also with steep hills. The bearing rain made it painful and difficult for horses going uphill. And this was a review of the book in the Times. In the end, Sewell was delivering a fundamentally tough lecture about the enslavement of living beings, imbalance of power and the brutality that it can bring and the moral imperative to show more compassion. This is a message we still need to hear. Yeah. So you've been in a lot of pain this week, Nick. I have. I am even more attractive than I was. I'm even more attractive i have now got to the stage this last few days i've been dribbling and my lips been because i broke a tooth i was eating a sandwich not even anything hard and i ended up breaking a tooth right down to the root so i've I've literally even i've been feeling really sorry for myself so i got some some stuff to put on it that numbs it mr tooth smeared it across my lip and then I was just dribbling and biting my lips. So I've just been gorgeous. What with that and the Vagisil? Oh, that and the Vagisil. I'm, I'm good to go, aren't I? I mean, come on, boys. You, how can you resist? Come on, men. But it's kind of like, it's 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 been quite difficult, actually, because I was struck off. I found out when I phoned up for my emergency appointment, I found out that I'd been struck off for not going for the last two years. And, of course, we had covid and I had an appointment and then I got COVID, so I had to cancel the appointment. I never got COVID. Uh, you never got COVID. I had it twice. I never had the vaccination. You didn't. I didn't believe in it. You didn't. You didn't. And I did and I got it twice, so she's never going to let me live that down. Um, but they've struck me off. But I said, like, some warning would have been nice. And they said, no, we don't. We, it's not us. It's not the, the dentists. But the NHS, we don't warn anybody. You're automatically taken off the book. So anyone that... Just check when you last went to the dentist because if you've not been for two years, you will be struck off. And I was quite sort of uppity about it. I was a bit because I was in pain and, and, and I just wanted a dentist. And apparently, 
our dentist, my dentist in Barna Castle in a rural area in North Yorkshire has got 30,000 people on the books. I found that absolutely like shocking. And it was on uh, Good Morning Britain this morning that apparently a new dentist has opened in Faversham uh, in Kent and they had 27,000 calls, 700 emails and people queuing up through the night outside to try and join and they only had 60 places to get. So the, it's really now quite a crisis and I think most people now are having to look at private insurance. I've, I've got back on the waiting list for my dentist and they said, well, basically, like, we've got a waiting list, but you're never going to get back in. You, you just really need to sort something else out. I find it weird that the NHS, if you get a mental health problem, so I have had mental yeah. health problems, literally at the beginning of this year, I felt I was having a breakdown. And I did have a breakdown in my kitchen when I couldn't do a job. Yeah. I've had emails, how are you, Liz, you know, mm. phone calls, and I did this online course, and mm. I, I complained, I said it was rubbish, and it was for two-year-olds, and they phoned me, we, we can, you could do face-to-face, where are you, yeah. are you coming? Or if you get cancer, hopefully you're, you're, you're treated. Yeah. But when it comes to teeth, that scene is not important. It's unbelievable. And also, I I really hate this term social care. In it's that it's not your fault if you get old and you're still alive. No. Why is it called social care? It's just care. Yeah. It's just care. Why yeah. was my mum, who couldn't walk, who had dementia, who was just lying in a bed, why? Did she cost me £30,000? Yeah. But if she'd been 40 and a lifelong smoker and didn't look after her health, no. it, they'd all rally round her. Why did my mum cost £30,000? Just because she didn't die. Yeah. It's part of life, isn't it? it? Is. Growing old is the same as cancer. Of course. It's the same as any illness, anything that needs help. And dental health is, like, really important. It saves money in the long term. And and eventually managed to get an appointment. But, but what they did, to get an emergency appointment, you have to phone up at 8 o'clock in the morning to get an appointment that day. They won't actually give you an appointment. And, of course, 8 o'clock in the morning, the phones are gridlocked. You can't get through. All the appointments are gone and you're left there. I mean, I was in agony. Like, the root was exposed. There was a bit of infection. I was in agony. And... Finally managed to get in today, and I had a lovely man, lovely dentist, really, really nice. And I was just, I, I don't know, I just felt like it was so almost like unimportant, like I'm in agony, and it's just not important, because where do you go? You can't go to A&E, you have to go to a dentist. It's made so difficult. And then the nurses, like this this guy, really nice man, was, was doing my teeth, and the nurses were just chatting about their day. I hate they were people chatting. Chatting behind me, like they weren't. She weren't looking at suctioning like the stuff out. So I was gagging and nearly sick. They were talking about what they were having for dinner and where they were going tonight. And I'm I just hate like, people chatting. It just felt to me that the whole thing around dental care, the whole experience—they've struck me off without telling me. I've had to phone like at eight o'clock in the morning desperately to try and get appointments like every day for an emergency NHS appointment because I can't afford to go private. 
then when you finally get an appointment, they chat and just like pretty much ignore you and tell you there's pretty much no way you're ever going to get back on the NHS register. There's just not going to happen. That doesn't happen at my dentist. No, but you've got very expensive teeth, haven't you? I've got very expensive teeth and a very nice dentist called Michael in Harley Street. And I have been going to him for... About 25 years. Yeah. And I remember <laughs> I was so obsessed with my teeth. The Evening Standard did a story on my teeth. No. The Evening Standard oh did God. a story on my teeth. <laughs> because I've got the same dentist as Martin McCutcheon. Right. And who was the lady from Downton Abbey? The very old one. Oh, I don't know. But I actually don't think the way... No, but I haven't finished talking oh. about my dentist. Oh, sorry. Tell So I had the same dentist as Martin McCutcheon and Maggie Smith. I okay. used to see her reading Country Life in the waiting room. I'd be very impressed if Maggie Smith still had teeth. She does, because she's she? got my dentist. Oh, oh, okay. That's why then. Um, the Evening Standard did a story on my teeth. And it was like, Liz Jones, editor of Marie Claire, spent £10,000 on her teeth. So I was like, yeah, but you don't run that story, do you, when Giles Corran buys an electric jag or Jeremy Clarkson buys a £50,000 car, but you criticise my teeth. Well, you've got very nice teeth. I have to say, do you remember we... we but I'm not a drain on the NHS, You're am I? You're not a drain on the NHS. And I really objected to everyone having a go at Rishi Sunak for not having a an NHS GP, if you can afford not to be a drain on the NHS, great. So I've always had a private GP, Mr Hancock. Yeah. Not Tony. Not Tony. Private everything, private gynaecologist, private dentist. Yeah. Why would I be a drain on the NHS? Well, that's good good, good for you because... I don't think there's going to be a dentist on the NHS for much longer. I mean, Tina, actually, they, the, her practice, my, my best friend Tina, her practice actually stopped doing NHS appointments and she's had to go over onto a dental plan because they've just stopped doing it. So it just, I don't think we're actually going to end up with an NHS dental practice anymore. I just don't. We'll just stop eating toffees. I've never had, I've, I, well, no. No, that's a, for the general public. Now we had a good we had a good Miranda moment this week, didn't we? Oh, how many Miranda moments this week? I said you remember that as a Miranda moment. Yeah, but there were so many. I've got I've got a little list. I think it was someone knocking on my door, and I said, "Go away, I'm an artist." You've said I'm an artist quite a few yeah, times. Yeah, but I am this an week. artist. But you say it quite a lot this week. She, her favourite one before was "I will destroy you." And now it's, I'm an artist. I will destroy you. I am you. an artist. I can't do that because I'm an artist. I can't, I'm an artist. That's your new one, isn't it? But it like, seems to, it's like no one has any respect for me and the fact I'm working. You know how everyone's working at home these days? Yeah. No one has any respect for you, the fact you're working at home. No. They interrupt you, they knock on the door, the postman, he's the bane of my life. I, I'm like... Don't give me a stupid leaflet from Rishi Sunak. You've made my dog's bark. You've interrupted my artistic flow. Although I do have to point out, and I will point out, we were recording last week's podcast, and there was a knock on the door, and Liz sort of exploded and went rushing over to the window. I looked out the window. Go, it's a DPD van, Nick. Go away, go away. Oh, no. Oh, Nick is really oh, handsome. the change. So we both went down and looked at him, didn't we? so handsome. I'll tell you Wasn't what, I nearly, I nearly dragged him in by the hair. He was gorgeous. 
gorgeous. But the change from the like, go away, you're interrupting me to, oh, oh, quick, Nick, look, look, look. Look, he's really oh, handsome. No, he was so. I mean, I'm getting a bit hot and bothered now. I'm forgetting the pain in my mouth now. We've moved on to the delivery driver. But do you know what the column is about this way? Are you moist? Was I moist last week? No, but I'm just checking because moist comes Something up quite a lot. made me moist last week. Did it? Oh, I don't know. Or was it the week before? Anyway, I've been invited to a wedding. Oh, that's nice. Not my wedding. Well, I, I, I would hope that I'd know something about that, but that's nice. That's cheerful. That's a summary thing to do. I never made it to Wimbledon with an old flame, probably just as well. He would have been surrounded by blondes with perfectly symmetrical faces wearing floral tea dresses. See, floral tea dresses are just not me, are they? No. No, I'm not floaty. No. I'm not floaty. No, you're definitely... I, 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 can't, I can't even picture it in my head. I just can't do it. Anyway, all these women hate me. They never speak to me, just in case I'm making notes for a future column. It would have been a reenactment of Rooney versus Vardy, only with a slightly different sport. You get that quite a lot, though, don't you? Like, if you're talking to someone, and they'll say, well, don't put that on your column. Don't put that in your column. Yeah, I know. I know. When anyone says to me, don't put it in that column, I just say, you're just not interesting enough. <laughs> As Dolly Alderton wrote in the Sunday Times about off-putting facts you can bring along to a date, she says, you once wrote a memoir seven years ago and now no one will come near you because they're paranoid you're secretly writing down everything they say to be transcribed directly into a book. I couldn't go to the Wimbledon as Nick's car broke down again. Again. Meaning it would have been hard for her to look after the horses. And also, the Daily Mail called me in a panic as Jane Birkin had just died. People always die at the wrong time. Like, Margaret Thatcher died just when I was on the motorway. She should have died an hour before or a couple of hours later when I got there. Yeah. I had to pull off into a service station and write a thousand words on Margaret Thatcher's wardrobe. So inconsiderate of her. Anyway, Jane Birkin died on a Sunday when I'm sole looking after the horses. Anyway, the mail said, can I write a thousand words on the legacy of the Birkin bag at Hermes? I was toiling up the hill with a wheelbarrow rather unglamorously. I haven't carried a handbag since moving to the country. I merely have pockets stuffed with poo bags and cocktail sausages. I think Teddy's eaten all your, hand, your remaining handbags, hasn't he? Well, I've only got one. You've only... <laughs> anyway, what I always do when I'm commissioned to do a piece... Oh, you can file it tomorrow morning. I spent all night writing it in my head. I churn it and churn it and churn it. So already toiling up the hill, thinking, oh, Jane Birkin, I'm forming sentences in my head along the lines of, was the legacy made from something dragged from a river and skinned alive really worth having? Because obviously Hermes uses crocodiles and alligators. By the time I got to my laptop 10 minutes later, puffing, sweating. You go up that hill like a gazelle. I go up there like I'm like I'm. But I also, ginger. when I'm asked to write a piece, I get very excited. And it's the adrenaline. Like, it's like, yes. And I'm at my typewriter and it's, it's like automatic because I'm so highly trained. Yeah. I'm so trained. It's just like, and I look back at a piece. And I think, God, did I write that? It's kind of. I think through my fingers. You do, and you go into the zone, and if in you the zone. and if you even see out the corner of your eye the mouth opening from somebody, it's like, don't interrupt me. 
And you made David Beep, didn't you? Coming towards I made you. David beep. Yeah. If I was writing and he was coming up behind me, he had to beep like a lorry reversing. Yeah. And I'll sometimes be sitting here with my laptop and I'll go to say something and she can literally see the hand comes up. Stop. Don't speak. <laughs> anyway, I got to my laptop thinking, yes, this is my first sentence. Then I was asked to stand down from writing the piece. So someone else had said yes first. A big rival, oh, actually. He was dear. very, very, very mean to me in the past. Yeah, she wasn't happy. No. Wasn't happy. Wouldn't let me share her limo to Versailles for Dior. But anyway, it's another story. Someone else had said yes to the obit first. And that's how cutthroat my profession is, even after 43 years. If you're not fast enough up that hill with the wheelbarrow, you don't get the, you don't get the job and you don't get the money. And to be fair, you are pretty fast up that hill. Anyway, I've been invited to a very late summer wedding. On the list of instructions, the following. No wedding gifts. No photos on your phone. No stilettos without heel protectors as the floor of the venue is very ancient. I felt like replying and adding like the bride, but I think better of it. No plus one if we haven't met him, her, them. No children. My back is up. They've also sent a map of the venue. The car park looks an awfully long way from reception. Feeling tired already, I wonder if I can be bothered. I I couldn't be bothered with that. At a wedding in the Peak District, I left booking anywhere too late because I'd asked my husband to do it and he didn't do it. So we had to stay in this horrible place. So I had room envy of everyone who was staying at the venue. I hate having room envy. I've always got room envy. You have. And God forbid you have a room with two beds in. No, not more than one bed. (laughs) The place I was staying at had mini imperial leather soap. I love that. Mini imperial leather soap. It wasn't Aesop, was it? No, my nan used to have that. At another nuptial in Suffolk on the coast, on arrival, me and my then boyfriend were confronted in the hotel with a stair lift. Who stays at a hotel with a stair lift? And he had the cheek to say, do you want to have a go on it? Well, you know, a few tonics. I said, no, it's the Louboutins. It's the Louboutins hopping to take them off. (laughs) But wanting an airing, I booked a divine room at time in the Cotswolds nearby. It costs £800 a night. All I need now is a car and a plus one, the bride has met, which isn't easy, and an outfit. You know you're getting older when your first thought is, I'm not spending the entire day, some of it on grass in high heels. I bought some Gucci slides on eBay thinking they'd be comfy, but I keep falling off them and they gave me blisters. That, I've got very soft skin, you see. They massacred your feet. You no longer have shells. I've just bought an oversized double-breasted blazer online at Zara, which I think I'm going to wear over a bodycon dress. All I need now is the body and the con. I figure even if I can't afford a house, I can look nice. I once got 30% discount at Netaporte, 40% discount at Prada, but I think I've been excommunicated. I see it, a stretch crepe midi by Gage 81 in the Netaporte sale. It's black, but I can lighten it with my silver Manolos bought at Barney's for the Oscars 
sod their flaws, sod the plus one. I will save money on the extreme bikini waxing. And you have so much of a better time, won't yeah. you? Without a bloody bloke with you. Yeah, saying, why don't you take the stairlift? Yeah, because every time you go to or the buying or them something. dinner and I'm in Victoria Beckham and they call me an arsehole. What was yeah. that rag you used to edit? Yeah, every single time when you went to Edinburgh for your niece's wedding, every time... I was called in Edinburgh, I booked this Georgian two-bedroom apartment on Airbnb and I had this beautiful sugary pink outfit with a matching hat from Susanna who dressed the lovely, gorgeous girl who does the carriage driving for Prince Philip and the royal family at the coronation, that dress, that designer... And he texted me and called me the C word on text from the spare room. That's not nice. You're much better off going on. Do you want to be called the C word? No. By text from the spare room when you just spent £900 on an Airbnb apartment. No. And I missed all the speeches because I left. So you can go, you can look lovely. And you can have a nice time with that interference from bloody ungrateful men. But I'd have done a good job on Jane Birkin and I'd have said something that no one else said because, you know, in the obit in the Times said, oh, she had the Jane Birkin bag and she just said, oh, this old thing. But I'd have talked about the crocodiles and the alligators. And it reminds me of when Alexander McQueen died and he died just before his mother's funeral. And my former PA, I wrote an obit in the Daily Mail, and my former PA, Kerry, very willing Kerry, she emailed me to say I was the only journalist in the world to have given McQueen a negative obit. Yeah. I was. Just because someone's died doesn't make them a nice person. No, that really, really drives me mad. Someone dies and all of a sudden they're, they're treated like they're a saint. They are what they are. It is what it is. You can read this week's diary in full on Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Do you want to know what the archive is? Yeah, I've seen what the archive is and I'm I, I'm going to put an earpiece in so I don't have to listen. Oh. Because it's going to be upsetting, isn't it? It was really traumatic, wasn't it? Well, in 2008, the Daily Mail sent me to Ethiopia um, and that was with the brook. And yeah. the brook was a charity started just after the First World War when this amazing woman went to the Middle East and Egypt, France, and she saw that all the war horses who saved Britain from Germ- from Germany, who laid down their lives, who were blown up and carried all the mules and everything, they were all being used as workhorses in the Middle East, and then they were eaten. So she started the brook. So I went to Ethiopia with the brook in 2008. And this is my piece um, that was in the Daily Mail. Ever since I was five, I've loved horses. I had a poster of a horse, not a pop star, on my bedroom wall. Every summer, I would enter the W.H. Smith short story competition to win a pony. I never, ever won. Each birthday, I would look at my bedroom window, convinced that my parents had bought me a pony. They never did. A year ago, at the age of 49, I fulfilled my childhood dream and bought a horse, a beautiful thoroughbred mare who had been abused but is now sweet and trusting. That's Lizzie who died. 
I've rescued others since. A tiny pony with a broken pelvis. Another with breathing problems. That's Benji. He was a week away from being shot because he didn't like children. Far from being the precious, treasured creatures that as a child I believed them to be, I see now the horses live a precarious existence. Careful, just as long as they're useful, can do competitions. They don't get old or ugly or too expensive. I thought I was coming to understand the pain and suffering the horses go through and that I was beginning to make a difference, however small. That is, until I travelled to Ethiopia, where 78% of people live on less than a pound a day and more than 6 million are in dire need of aid. Here, I find myself tipped into hell, realising that when people are desperate, animals suffer even more. So I went with the Brook, a charity that aims to promote healthy working animals for the poorest people on the planet. They've been working in Ethiopia for three years. And that woman who went to the Middle East after the First World War was called Dorothy Brooke. She was horrified to see former cavalry horses being used as hard labour in Cairo. In the intervening years, the Brooke has now been working in South America, Asia and Africa and has Camilla Parker Bowles as its patron. But I was about to find out in Ethiopia where the rains have failed yet again, and there is fear that the terrible famines of the 1980s are about to return, it's clear the brook has a long way to go. I leave the capital, Addis Ababa, in a four-wheel drive with Kibnesh Chala of the brook, who is to act as my guide. Ethiopia has 8 million horses, more horses per head of population than any other country bar China. This means the main tarmac road that slices the country in two is virtually empty of motor vehicles and is teeming with donkeys pulling carts with loads strapped upon their backs. Up ahead, I can see a grey shape in the road and a woman standing nearby wielding a whip. Oh no, says Kid Mesh. As we draw alongside, I can see the grey shape is a donkey that has collapsed under her load of grain. I get out of the car and I kneel beside her. Looking at the labels on the sacks... I realise she's been carrying 19 stone. The owner explains that she's been walking with her donkey since 7am. It's nearly 5pm and the sun is beating down relentlessly. I ask her why, given the donkey's collapse, she hasn't taken the load from her back. And she replies she would not have the strength to lift the sacks back onto the donkey again. Can she not let the donkey rest? The woman shakes her head. She has to be home before 6.30 so she can take part in a religious feast. There's nothing we can do, and we leave the donkey, her lips brushing the tarmac, her eyes no longer seeing anything, her tiny hooves folded neatly beneath her. Over the course of the next few days, we travel south from the capital to the most remote regions of the country. I see so many random acts of cruelty that all the prejudices I didn't even know I had against men, against women who give birth to child after child after child, bubbles to the surface, making me doubt my own humanity as well as theirs. The incredible patient people from the brook, in particular the 13 vets I meet, trained in equine health management, work with local people, persuading them to bring animals to the mobile clinics. They persuade them to attend training sessions in which they can learn how to look after their animals. And in return, it all makes sense, really. They enable the animals to work better and for longer. The average life expectancy of a donkey in Ethiopia is six years. I leave the capital in a four-wheel drive. 
I asked one man why he beats his donkey and he answers that he has seven children. I wondered that he can treat the one thing that is keeping his children from starvation with disrespect and he looks away. So Kibnesh from the Brook says he's ashamed. People here are so poor they do not think about tomorrow, they only think about today. We visit a vaccination programme in the Sarna in the remote south. The Brook vaccinates working equines for free. It's particularly essential because the recent drought has made the animals susceptible to disease. On the way, along a dusty pitted road in 26 degree heat, we had seen a pair of donkeys trying to put a cart overloaded with grain up an incline. The donkeys were straining, struggling to keep their footing. The cart kept rolling backwards, but the donkeys were leaning into their makeshift harness of old bits of plastic piping. The bits in the animals' mouths are the worst old pieces of wire that forces the donkeys to adopt a humiliating rictus grin were bravely doing their best. What made matters worse was that two teenage boys driving the car, rather than getting behind it and helping, were beating the donkey's bony backsides again and again and again. My driver and the Daily Mail photographer ran from the car offering to help. Only after much persuasion did the boys unload some of the grain and the cart went on its way. I met one woman and she told me that when the animals are so old and they can't work anymore, they just throw them to the hyenas. That's just... I, I just can't imagine this level of cruelty. It's just... But anyway, the, the brook has already made improvements in Ethiopia. Small ones, such as persuading people to use a wider, kinder tape to tether limbs. So they tether the... They hobble the, the animals so we don't run away. And big ones, such as an educational programme in schools a euthanasia initiative for animals who are too sick to work, the phasing out of the reliance on old remedies such as treating wounds with battery acid. Wow, oh my God. The book is lobbying for the regulation of garries, the horse-drawn taxis in towns. In some areas, the number of passengers has already been restricted to two. Anyone who restricts a horse can be reported and penalised. I stand in Addis Ababa at a crossroads watching the garries trotting past me and I'm not exaggerating when I say that every single horse is skeletal with jutting hip bones and ribs. Some of the horses' feet are so bad they are walking on the bottom of their legs, their hooves folded under them. Some have been shod with shoes made of wood, just nailed to their hooves. I stop one Gary, I look into the horse's eyes and I can tell he's blind. I later see a horse being sent down a hill at a canter. What are you late for? A board meeting, I shout at the bemused passenger, shocking myself that I can be so unsympathetic. I stop another Gary and I tell the driver I am shocked at the condition of his horse. I lift the dirty, stinking harness and find beneath it raw, bleeding wounds as deep as my fist. Are you not ashamed? I ask him. I understand he's suffering, but I have five children, is all he will say. Well, I also met men in Addis Ababa who called the wounds accelerators. What, what does that mean? They poke the wound to make the horse go <gasps> further, faster. Oh, my God. What I remember most about my trip to Ethiopia is the site of the grain market, just outside a town called Hassana. Human population 70,000, equine population 91,000. 
Mules, half donkey, half horse, are used for the terrible task of carrying grain because they're bigger and stronger than donkeys. When we arrive at the market, there are hundreds of them, heads down, feet spread wide to cope with the loads, while their owners haggled over the prices of grain. There was no shelter, no water, no respite. Suddenly, the mule next to me goes down with a groan. She lays on her side in the dust, her eyes closed. She just wants to die. She's had enough. Her owner, Abraham, who's 20, tells me they've just walked for six hours. I ask him to take the load off the mule, but he refuses. He insists the mule is resting. Absolutely. I ask Kibnesh why this young man cannot see the mule is suffering, and she tells me he thinks it's the mule's duty to serve him. He starts to beat the mule to make her get up, and I turn away. I kiss the mule at the market, and the men around me looked at me as if I'd lost my mind. Here, it's rare to see an animal being stroked or having a kind word. What I find most poignant about these animals is their silence. They don't bray, they don't whinny, they just try their best. When you stand next to them and try to loosen the ropes, they don't react or bite or move away. They've completely shut down. Again and again, people told me it's the animal's duty to serve them, that it's God's will. Although the scenes I see every day are biblical in their antiquity, I couldn't help thinking that God had nothing to do with this. But it's certainly not a God I want any part of. But then the person from the brook says to me that the people in Ethiopia need to have time. They would understand that the animals feel pain given time, and I snap. Ethiopia is where humanity began. The people here have had enough time. I literally was taking so, whips out of men's hands and wanting to fight them. There is a video of me wanting to fight 400 absolutely. men in Ethiopia because I thought if they kill me, great, it's on the news. Absolutely. It's utterly, there is no excuse. I don't think, in, there is no excuse whatsoever. Poverty, religion, whatever, there is absolutely no excuse for that cruelty. There was I'm one horse that not. moved me more than any other. She was brown and the thinnest animal I've ever seen. Her 70-year-old owner had bought her for breeding. Her woolly little foal stood by her side, was bought by another man and led away. As I stood hours later watching the sunset over the mountains in a country that is achingly beautiful, I could see the mare wandering among the crowds, wickering for her foal, her big dark eyes filled with confusion and fear. I wondered whether I could buy the mare, find her foal and fly them to the UK, but I was told they were in such a bad condition the journey would kill them. The only way to help these little horses and mules and donkeys and in turn to help their owners and in turn to stop children dying is to give money to the brook i still wish i'd been able to rescue that little mare the sound of her calling haunts me still every week lots of you get in touch telling me what you think about my life and my decisions so i think it's only fair that you get to have your say here on the podcast too if you'd like to get in touch, then go to lizjonesgoddess.com or tweet me at lizjonesgoddess. Maz wants you to know that she's just read this week's diary. In it's not magazine. a diary, it's a column. It's a diary. It's Liz Jones' diary. Such a relief about Minnie Puppy. And she wants you to know there are so many people that love you. And the dogs, always remember that. For years and years, you've been part of all our families. And that's how it will stay. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? So you are loved. 
And then we've got Adrian. We've got we're getting a lot of men lately. It's because I'm catnip to men. It's getting catnip to men. It's true. But we've got the one we wanted to adopt last week. But now we've got Adrian, who says, "I always enjoy your diary." It's in your not magazine. a diary, Adrian. It's a column, award winning. But have you noticed what the common denominator here is? I always enjoy your diary. It's because it's called Liz Jones' diary. You're it's gonna, a column. For God's sake. He says, sometimes I'm chuckling all day about something you've written and other times I'm squirming on your behalf of what's happened to you. I'm not into pity parties. So the positives I get for having chosen extremely bad long-term partners are, one, whilst I may make plenty more mistakes, I won't make those mistakes again. Two, it is definitely possible to be very happy being single but enjoying friends, acquaintances, banter with colleagues, that'll be me, and customers and pursuing interests I could never could in coupledom. Three, if I do meet someone new who is right, then I will enjoy and appreciate it all the more because of the contrast of previous experiences. So Adrian says, onward and upward, and if ever you're in the northeast, I will pay for coffee, drinks and lunch. And Adrian's in Darlington. He's only down the road. Come on, Adrian. Come on, Adrian. I think that's a date. It's down the road. Well, that's it from us this week. If you enjoyed listening to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, why not visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. I'll be back next Sunday, but for now, I'm Liz Jones. And I'm Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye.